Welcome to the Pessel. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie making process. Hosted by Pandemic Food. That 15 pound bag of rice is waiting to be cooked. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to the Pessel. Today's show is brought to you by TN Industries. Awakening the powers below the ocean to energize everything above it. TN Industries, you're in safe hands. Welcome everybody to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm Todd. And today we are joined by an incredibly special guest. Uh, is this, this might be his first time joining us. Um, this is Scott Dam Garrett Graham, um, <laughs> live and direct from his own uh, studio basement. How's it going, man? Going good. First time uh, virtually. Yeah, yeah. Fourth time, I think, on the podcast. Is this the fourth? I yeah. would have thought like you're in the tens by now. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it. It does. Welcome to the show, man. If y'all don't know, uh, in case this is your first time here in Scott, Scott is a musician, an actor, a playwright, multi-talented. I'm sure I'm forgetting many other of your, your skill sets. Writing is a, is a crazy thing, especially when it comes to, you know, for me, like screenplay writing, I've, I've never tried to write like a novel before. And so that methodology is just completely different from anything that I've ever tried. Um, but then I think of what you've done and we've all, uh, sat around a table and, and had other actors. I, you know, I don't know, like 15 other actors to sit and read a play that you wrote. It's like a 750, you know, page omnibus of, <laughs> of theater. <laughs> yeah, no. What was, what, what was that experience like? Yeah. How did that go? <laughs> well, we did it, I think about three or four times as far as like a read through workshop mm -hmm. kind of thing. Every time we would do it, we would already had like two other drafts in between each, <laughs> each session. So I kept changing, but yeah, I remember I mean, obviously being terrified that these other like people that I respected were, you know, acting out, reading, you know, the, the stuff that we created. And then to get to a part where I had, I'd have to play a song because it's technically a musical. So there mm -hmm. would be parts that, um, the musical part would happen. And instead of just doing it live, I just played the demo that I had recorded. Yeah, that was terrifying, <laughs> but, uh, it was awesome. I particularly when like a joke would land like now I get it when like stand-up comedians are like hooked when they get, you know, when they mm. kill it or whatever. Cause like, it was awesome. It was incredible. It was like a, it's like heroin. <laughs> Cause you know a lot about heroin. I know a lot about heroin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I, I get what you mean, but one of the nice things about if you, and I don't, I'm not going to, you know, claim this for you, but whenever you have good actors, sometimes it almost doesn't matter what you write. Like they bring, as long as you wrote with intention, I feel like a good actor is going to create something out of the, out of the dialogue, out of the words, because they're, they're so concerned about playing the moment, playing the intention instead of trying to chew up the words and make them sound good, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, well, from what I learned in my brief writing part period, it's like, yeah, you pour over every sentence and every word and every phrase. And I mean... I mean, Nick and I, Nicholas Wendell and I, I mean, God, yeah, we must've, I think six or seven drafts at least, if not more. And I mean, we, every single word and punctuation and we, I mean, poured over to make sure it was as perfect as we could get it. And then at that point you just have to let it go and let, you know, the actor take it and let them do with it what they will. And yeah, a lot of times moments would happen 
that you weren't expecting. Like you, like you would specifically write with the intention of like, oh, I want this person to do this. And then it would get on to the live setting and it would become something else. And you're just sitting there like, holy crap. And you're like writing down like what they're doing. Like this is so much better. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so yeah, those, those workshops and read throughs are, are yeah, key. They're really good. When you're writing it before you, when it's just you and Nicholas in the room, are you performing it together, the scene out loud, or do you just kind of talk about it and then you write it? More so the latter. Yeah. Mm. Uh, rarely did we like try to like act it out ourselves. It was just brainstorming sessions and hashing over words and ideas and yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, I probably operate the same anytime Scott or uh, Todd and I get together to, to work out ideas. We, we start at a very high level and we kind of bullet point where we'll, you know, we'll talk out a bunch of stuff and then I'll bullet point it and then I'll just kind of run home and I hear it all in my head. It's all, you know, music in my head. Uh, and I have some of those same experiences, but I'm just surprised because uh, all of us are actors and Nicholas, yeah. who you're talking about is a fantastic actor. And so it just yeah. kind of surprises me that we don't actually try performing these things, improving these things, because none of us so far have really operated that in that headspace, the the Matt Damon, Ben Affleck style of writing through creating the mm -hmm. scene first. Oh, is that how they do it? Uh, yeah, from what I understand. Okay. Yeah, I had something to say. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Scott's partaking in extracurricular activities. <laughs> well, yeah, in, no, uh, in homage to Mozart, I thought I would, uh, you know, try to finish a whole bottle of wine, and I'm definitely <laughs> succeeding in that. So, you know, hey, <laughs> well done, <laughs> nice. Well, the one of the reasons I brought up playwriting in your your plays because I feel like there is some overlap with what we're doing today, which is definitely. What? Uh, today we are covering Amadeus, which is a long time coming. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, pause this episode, go find it, watch it. I'm not sure where it's streaming. Is it streaming anywhere? I'll look that up while we're talking, but Amazon has it. It's on Amazon. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then go make sure to pause this episode, go watch it, come back uh, uh, because we're, there's going to be spoilers everywhere. For sure. We'll talk about a few things. I don't have uh, crazy amount of stuff. I have questions that I'll probably end up posing to uh, the two musicians here. Um, but for my part, you know, we'll touch on some of the cinematography, uh, story and writing, engaging the audience um, through some of the, the the writing style, and we'll we'll discuss living in the shadow of Mozart and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis: the life, success, and troubles of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, as told by Antonio Salieri the contemporaneous composer who is insanely jealous of Mozart's talent and claimed to have murdered him. Directed by Milos Forman, written by Peter Schaefer, cinematography by Miroslav Andrik, uh, starring F. Murray Abraham as Antonio Salieri, Tom Hulse as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Elizabeth Berridge as Constance Mozart, and Jeffrey Jones as Emperor Joseph II. Your merciful God. He destroyed his own beloved rather than let a mediocrity share in the smallest part of his glory. He killed Mozart and kept me alive to torture. 32 years of torture, 32 years of slowly watching myself become extinct. My music growing fainter all the time, fainter, till no one plays it at all. His. Good morning, Professor. Time for the water closet. 
then we have your favorite breakfast for you. Sugar rolls. He loves those fresh sugar rolls. I will speak for you, Father. I speak for all mediocrities in the world. I am their champion. I am their patron saint. <laughs> Is everywhere. I absolve you. I absolve you. I absolve you. <laughs> oh my god, I don't even know where to start. Let's begin with the Todd. How has it been a while since you've seen this? Um, yeah, been a long while. I usually, you know, it's I usually don't watch it unless uh, Scott says, "Hey, how long has it been since you watched Amadeus?" <laughs> um, so yeah, it's been a long time, but I was excited to see it because I know I liked it. You know, watching it again was very much like the first time I watched it before. I mean, I will say, you know, I I think that though. Well, I'll get to this in just a second, but overall. Very enjoyable to watch it. I the the acting was was fantastic. I didn't feel like I was watching actors, you know, like and it was that's which is really hard to do because you have American accents or Western accents saying lines that would sound way better in British accents and sound almost, you know, they very easily could sound totally fake and not hit right but all the main characters have western accents and they all pull it off and i buy it you know it's just i think it's because they all do except like a couple of the like i think the director has a british accent and the the really fat sweaty guy has a british accent but for the most part everybody every major player for sure has a western accent uh, i think that because of that I wasn't taken out of it because it just was what it was. But Tom Hulse is just, I mean, just so good. So good. And F. Murray Abraham is like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, I think that the point of the, the, the way of telling the story from the point of view of Celieri was really awesome and brilliant. The things that I loved about this movie, I'll, I'll just, I'll just say a couple of things. One, I love that they, it was very painfully, not painfully, but it was very wonderfully obvious that they went through a lot of effort and, and pain to make it seem like the singers were actually singing, mm. right? Obviously they weren't, you know, you have, it has, you know, there's a, there's a, whatever, obviously they weren't because yeah, very few films do that, but they were lip syncing very well. And so many movies today they don't do that. They don't limp sync well. Um, they don't line it up enough. It's, it's obvious, like the mixing is bad, you know, like here it felt like, you know, they were a little farther away, they're a little far away, but, but it was coming from them, you know, not a hundred percent obviously, but, but they did a very good job of making it seem like that. And an opera, you don't have microphones. You have to sing to the back of the room and that's, you know, if you can't project, you won't be a singer. And so, so you have to hear a lot of the room and you have to hear a lot of the actual uh, symphony or orchestra, sorry. And you do, 
And it, it felt like that. So I loved that. That was, that was very wonderful. They paid a lot of homage to, to these, these titans, Salieri and Mozart, to their love of music, their love of not just music, but creating it and it coming from them, right? They just, that's what this movie was about. It was like this love story to music more than anything else, more than God, more than women, more than, than money, more than anything, more than fame even. It was this love story to music. And I really felt that in, in every kind of like every turn that the story made or every development that happened, I still felt like it was always about the music and it was always going to come back to the music. And it always did. I also love that. I love that Salieri <laughs> is played as the villain. And yet it is so obvious that he loves Mozart. Mm-hmm. He loves him dearly, dearly. He more than anyone else on the planet is the most important thing. I would say music and then Mozart to Salieri. That's it. And, you know, but he's, but he's made out to be the villain. Right. And I love that, like that he, it, you know, if he claims to have murdered Mozart, it's only because he wanted to have some piece of Mozart. And he couldn't, he couldn't even finish writing that last piece with him. Like God took that away from him. And so in order to take some piece of Mozart, he would take ownership in his death. I mean, like that makes total sense. You know, um, uh, yeah, those few things really stood out to me, but this also reminds me of the, our conversation back when we, when we did whiplash of, which was one of my favorite conversations. And I think we had Joe on that one or no, maybe we didn't have, we didn't have anybody. I always think we have Joe because we just talked to him about it. But in this idea of having, of requiring a villain to bring out the greatness in someone. Right. And I feel like this story also parallels with that kind of idea because, and I think that there's always greatness in Mozart and anything he he wrote was gold, was golden and incredible, but he reveals at the end, at least in this film, he reveals at the end that he always, it, it, it was wonderful to him that Salieri loved his work. He always thought that he didn't like it. And to find out that he did almost was like a weight off of him. So there was something, it might not have been the singular fo- driving force for Mozart. And I don't think it was, but it was a driving force. And I just, I, I don't know, that resonated with me as well. I thought the writing was great. I didn't feel like it was super long. I did feel like some of the, the, the opera moments were just like, okay, we can leave this. I don't need to see this, you know, for three solid minutes. Like I get the idea after 30 seconds, you can cut away. But other than that, man, I could definitely see in 1984, this being best, best picture uh, for sure. Yeah, I, I I really loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah, those moments where they linger in the in the music, you can tell like this is what they think. I could see if if they said, you know what, we're going to make the movie just so that we can have these moments that, where we get to sit in this era 
witnessing Mozart. So we can just kind of hang out here for a minute. Um, it almost everything else almost felt like an excuse just to experience uh, those kind of moments. But I agreed completely with you. I would have been fine trimming those down so that we could get the runtime down maybe to like a, a manageable 240 <laughs> instead of <laughs> three hours. Maybe. But I yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have too much to say, but I think one of the largely I think you're right, especially when they're on the stage, a lot of, you know, lip syncing. Um, one of the moments I feel like was her singing was in the early on in the rehearsal room whenever the the woman is, you know, practicing with Salieri and he starts bagging on him really bad. If you've never been around an opera singer, you may not know the kind of power they generate that looks completely effortless from the outside. Like I'm, I know both of y'all I've, I've seen, you know, and know probably op, op, operatic singers. Uh, I used to be really good friends with one who now performs still in opera in, in Germany. You know, she tours and does really well, um, but she is tiny. I mean, very small. She used to work at Olive Garden um, when she was <laughs> going through school Ooh. and they would do like, awesome. happy birthdays. And she would come out and just shut down the restaurant. Um, she'd go from waiting the table to, oh, it's your birthday. She just tears like glasses oh, breaking. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. Tiny. I mean, she probably, you know, weighed 110 pounds. And and if you close your eyes, you would think there is a 500 pound, you know, dragon st standing in front of you. Like she was just absolutely incredible. And so whenever I'm hearing them, like I do not mind spending those moments with the opera singers. Agreed. Specifically the women, because whenever they're in their element, it's unlike anything else for sure. For me. So I had a strange experience, I think, and I, I don't know exactly what happened here, but I watched it twice. The first time I was riveted. The second time I couldn't keep my eyes open. <laughs> I was bored to tears. It was, I could not connect. And I don't know if maybe I just didn't get enough sleep. I got only got a three or four hours of sleep last night and I'm trash whenever I don't sleep. And so I don't know if that kind of leaned into it, but I really just could not care whatsoever that second time through. Um, whereas the first time I was hanging right there with Mozart every step of the way, whenever he's frustrated with them for not giving him his leeway to tell, you know, Figaro um, or, you know, he's talking about this new thing that he's he's working on. He's so excited. I think part of it was maybe I was ex excited to see what it was. The anticipation of it really kept me connected. And then um the second time through, I kind of already knew what those punchlines were and I wasn't excited to revisit those moments. And so I think that probably paid into it along with, again, the, the three hour runtime. Uh, not bad the first time through, but, you know, not as forgiving. Whereas if, if I waited, you know, five, six years before watching this again and kind of forgot all the beats, mm -hmm. then it's like thrilling and, you know, I'm enthralled all over again. And so, yeah, that was just kind of and so I. I had almost no notes and we'll get to that in a little bit, the, the little I do have. But yeah, I was really struggling, I guess, to make a lot of sense of certain aspects of it. I don't know. I think we'll tie that all in together later. But I am curious, um, Scott, I, I don't know if this is your favorite movie, but uh, I know you love this movie a lot. And I'm curious what brings you back to it? What draws uh, you to Amadeus? It, it has battled first place for a while, uh, I think. I think it finally overtook Lawrence of Arabia five years nice. ago. Nice. That's so it's Titan. Yeah. I think. And so, yeah, comparing that to Lawrence, uh, it just has like, it has more of like a, a lightness to it. And it's kind of, it's more, it's fun. 
in a different way, like fun as in like entertaining. Whereas like Lawrence of Arabia is fun, like where it's like, this is the most epic thing I could ever think of. Yeah. It, it, it just like, it has this like funness, this like joy to it. And I, from what I've heard from, um, like what we've knew from Mozart as a person, like he was kind of like a, a silly, fun, kind of quirky dude. Hmm. And, uh, I really think that that was a kind of like the tone they were trying to create with this movie was to represent Mozart as a person. So it kind of has this light silliness to it and then just kind of leaps along, but then it gets, you know, super dark in the second act and with the death of his father, sorry, spoilers, but we've already done that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's just, it has everything that, and like it has romance and Lawrence of Arabia doesn't really have romance, maybe some underlining stuff. I mean, what, what's her name? Uh, Elizabeth Berege, uh, mm. I'm gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous woman and perfect acting. And, um, I don't know. It just, and obviously the music, I mean, Mozart, I mean, how, how can you go wrong with Mozart? It's like Beethoven, Bach, Mozart. It's like the, you know, the, the Trinity. And, uh, I really, I really loved her as his wife. Yeah. She was, she was perfect. She's awesome. So yeah, I, I guess I don't know. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, it's a long movie and I guess Lawrence of Arabia is a long movie too, <laughs> but, uh, I just, yeah, it's, it's got, you know, the two acts very high in comedy, very high in drama and, uh, yeah. full of great music. And, um, and then really, I mean, if you really want to put a pin in it, it's, it's Salieri. It's, you know, F Murray Abram just yeah. put on a clinic. I mean, uh, I, I can't even, can't even describe like where yeah. he went to, to do that, which is funny. Cause like Celieri wasn't even like, uh, of course they made that up to have a villain, but he, right. he was technically, I think around the same period as Mozart as a composer in Vienna, but like, and I think they were friends, but they weren't like, it wasn't like a rival. They weren't mm -hmm. like at each other's throats. Like Celieri wasn't, I mean, not that I know of, wasn't jealous of oh. Mozart, where, where, where he wanted him dead but <laughs> right as far as like historical accuracy uh, right. from what we know Salieri was had no you know animosity towards towards Mozart and I was right. gonna ask y'all like for y'all in this movie does that does historical inaccuracies like that like bother you or is it just you know part of the ride and you're okay with creating some element of of drama for the sake of a movie yeah I'm I'm fine with it I mean I've I've read through forums where people are like, yeah, I mean, the historical side of it's really shitty, but you know, whatever, it's fine. I don't know. <laughs> it makes for a great story. I mean, you, you kind of have to have some antagonist and it makes sense and it's perfect. I mean, if you think about it from a movie story writing perspective, uh, what a perfect villain is like a musical peer who's jealous, you know, and, mm. but then thinks that God is literally speaking through Mozart and is re redirecting it to the wrong person and it should be him, you know? And so he's taking all his aggression on Mozart when he's really taking his aggression out on God. Yeah. So it's, yeah, this isn't a biopic, you know, this is like, this is, this is entertainment, right? This is, it's different. It's, it's not like they're trying to tell history. If they were, then yes, I would care for sure. But I don't, I don't care. This is just a, a fun story. And where, the, where there is truth, fantastic. I love it. And I think be as truthful as you can, with, even if you're not trying to tell a biopic. You know, it's just like, you know, don't like change stuff to be fanatical unless it like helps your narrative. Yeah. But 
at the same time, you know, if you're not, if you're not doing that, if you're not doing a biopic, then just do, you know, yeah, let's tell it from Salieri's point of view. That's cool. That's not like just a normal movie. If this was a normal movie and we weren't cutting back to the old Salieri, this movie would have fallen, fallen completely flat because of, of so many reasons. But one just, I mean, we talk about this on this podcast all the time. The thing that makes something different is passion. The thing that makes something uh, stand out uh, and better than, you know, this or that, or, or there's something about the, about this film and I can't put my finger on it is passion. And that's either passion from the filmmaker, from the writer, from the actors, from the, the score, you know, from the cinematography, everything, the more love that's put into all of those places, the better it's going to be. And so when you go back to Salieri and he's old, there is more passion in that old man than in the young man. And the young man was so passionate, not only about like, not only about God at one point, but about God working through him and then about God working through Mozart and then anger about God working through Mozart and then hatred for God and hatred for Mozart, but but still passion and love for Mozart. Like he is so passionate as a character, a young character. And all of that has built up over the the next 32 years after Mozart's death. And he has nothing but passion left. And that passion is, is shown in rage and anger and, and sadness and depression, all of those things. But that's all he has left. He doesn't even have music left anymore. He doesn't even have his old music left anymore. Because nobody listens to it, he says. That is what made the movie, for sure, for me. But I, I did love her as his wife. And just to go back to that for a second, because there were some moments that really jumped out to me. The first moment we see her, I think she is... I, I did not... You know, I didn't remember anything about... Very much, little about this movie. So Same. Uh, I'm sitting here, you know, and she comes, she comes up to the stage after he performs for the king and her with her and her mom and they lift her up onto the stage and i'm like you know and he had I'd obviously just been with the the <laughs> like physically uh-huh. with the singer uh the opera singer and so you know they're looking at each other and he's like <laughs> you know laughing <laughs> like you know funnily but i i didn't remember that they stayed together you know what i mean mm-hmm. that that like they ended up getting married yeah. it, usually in stories like this you expect like oh she's a bumbling idiot and and he like moves on his brilliance is too much for her and he moves on or she, you know, whatever, can't take it. But that doesn't happen in this film and they, they stay together. And I love that. I love that. And I love that she just fucking loves him and just wants to be with him and wants to be important in his life in some aspect, but it's only music that is dri- driving him, but she just loves him. And that scene where they're at the, the comedy, pl- you know, watching the the comedy uh um uh, opera with the, the the little people and everything and then the guy comes up and visits and she fights for him and she's she says half the house no no how much are you gonna pay him right now i want money in my hand like yes mozart yeah that's what you need you need that you know backing you uh and then even at the end you know fighting to protect him from salieri because she knows that he's a snake like she saw it and she like trying to kick him out, like saying, no, you do not, you do not get to write. You do not get a piece of my husband. You do not get to write down anything from his mind. No, you don't, you don't get that. It was just 
beautiful that that was the last thing that she did for him was to take that away from Salieri. Physically, she physically took the pages away and locked them away and said, you cannot have this mother effer. And that was just beautiful and wonderful. And I loved her more as this movie went on because she developed into what, you know, a real mate is supposed to be like, it's supposed to be like never ending support, you know, even when you're the bad guy, like, you know, cause to the way that I was feeling watching that with her taking it away from me, I was like, I was feeling, it was so funny. I felt like she was taking away from me because I loved the scene. Finally, we get this scene of them working together. These two brilliant musical minds, they're working together and they're feeding off of each other. And he's listening to Mozart and taking in the, the, the beauty of Mozart and, and, and being able to write it down. And he finally feels he's feeling God through him, right? He's getting this feeling. And Mozart is actually like able, you know, he got the ver verification from Solieri that he lo loves his, his music and thinks that he's the best and everything. And, and so he's getting to work with this guy he's looked up to for, for years. And, and then we're, I'm seeing that and I'm like, yes, finally we get this. And then she takes the pages away. I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't take those pages away. I want to see where this goes, you know? And then he dies and I realize, oh, Salieri doesn't get this. I forgot about the whole scene of her showing up and being willing to give herself to him yeah. uh, for her husband and say what you would like, it's a terrible thing to have to, to think that, you know, that you would have to do, um, or to even do it. That's like, you know, that could be argued that, that, you know, she shouldn't have done that. It was just for money or whatever, but they were br dead broke and she was broken hearted afterwards. She knew she screwed up, you know, uh -huh. but he put her in that situation. Uh, so he's a freaking snake. And so when she comes in and takes it away from him, I'm like, oh yeah, he is an asshole. <laughs> Oh, this is all for him. This isn't, he wasn't doing any of that writing for, for Mozart. He was only doing it for himself. So yeah. anyway, sorry. Uh, that's my tirade. I usually go on my tirade at the beginning, but <laughs> I, good I, stuff. yeah. And I know briefly, like, I know that she, uh, historically was a singer. I forget if she was like a, a tenor or sopratic or whatever, but, oh, right. um, but yeah, she, yeah. she was actually a singer in real life. Yeah. I'm sorry. What were you going to say, Scott? Well, so yeah, before you mentioned that uh, she, you know, offered herself to Salieri. That's actually in the, um, director's cut, which I watched for the first time a couple nights ago. So originally, in Oh, the, it's not in the original. No. In the original version, they, they cut all that out. So it's when she first comes to Salieri with Mozart's originals, you know, to like, please read these and submit Mozart for the position. And then I think it's, you know, they do the thing, whatever he reads the script, which is, you know, awesome. But, uh, when she drop when he drops it and she's picking it up and he, she looks up, like, I think the last thing she says is like something like, is it good? Or will you help us or whatever? And I think they cut to him. Just, he doesn't say anything. He just walks out the door and that's the end. Yeah. Of that's what I remembered. But then I watched the director's cut yep. th this time and I'm like, I don't remember any of this. Yeah. 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 So yeah, so Interesting. they add, so yeah, they cut originally for the original director's cut, they add all that. And this is the first time I was ever seeing this. So I'm kind of like going, Oh, this is extra. Obviously I knew there were going to be extra things on the director's cut. Cause I think it's 20, 25 minutes longer, which brings it to a full three hours. Dude, it needed it. Like that scene yeah. changes everything in the movie. Well, it makes, it makes it, 
it lets things make more sense, specifically at the yeah. end when she walks into Mozart's room and she sees Salieri and you see that expression on her face of like, what yeah. are you doing here? Because How they, could they cut that out? Well, I don't know. Yeah. And what do you think his, so, so the way that play, that whole sequence played out is kind of wild because he right says uh, he, he creates a test for God and for Stanzi and implies that she's going to have to sleep with him to get Mozart the job. Um, and then he's praying to God just to give him one great song, just one, you know, and then she shows up and offers herself and he kicks her out and swears against God and makes Mozart his enemy. Hmm. Um, right. He burns the, uh, the Jesus in effigy. Like what, what does that sequence say to you, uh, both of you about what was his intentions with that? What was the real test that was happening there? It, it seemed like he didn't, at least from what, when I saw it, cause I, so you see him praying at the piano mm -hmm. and, you know, begging God and it, instantly I'm thinking like, Oh, well it's him hoping that she doesn't show up, but he, the narration turns to please help just give me a song. So it's almost like he's not even thinking about her. And then when yeah, she right. finally does knock on the door and the guy says, Oh, it's the woman or whatever you, I think he actually like rolls his eyes like, Oh, I forgot about this. Almost yeah, like he's just like definitely. kind of sort of forgot about it. And he's like, Oh, definitely. she actually showed up. Oh, what an idiot. I can't wait to you know mess with her. So, so you think it's part yeah. of a whole continuation of his expectations keep getting upended. Like later in the film, the emperor shows up to a rehearsal and he's like, that never freaking happens. What is he doing here? Mm -hmm. Um, maybe. Yeah. He petitions his, he petitions Mozart's wife expecting, no, she'll never do this. And she does it. Uh, there's a barrier broken. They're going to take the, the ballet out of the performance and then the king shows up who, and that never happens. Like you said, that's another barrier broken. Yeah. It's like all these things that never happen all of a sudden are happening. And it's, he just can't, it's gotta be God messing with him. He just can't imagine that it would happen. But yeah, that's uh that's what I thought too, Scott. I thought like he was praying for a sign uh, or praying, yes, that she wouldn't show up. That's what I thought at first. Yeah. And then he starts talking about it being about music. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> he doesn't care. Yeah. OK, so he's not even like you said, you said it all like he's not even thinking about her showing up. And then she shows up. Yeah, it's almost it's almost like a, that he forgot. And he's a little frustrated that he's being interrupted. <laughs> he's like, really? You know? That that really worked? She showed up. Jeez. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I thought I remember thinking, did, did this happen? Does he sleep with her? Like, because she. He like lets her fully undress like topless. And then and then he tells her to get out. It's right. like that's even God, what an asshole. Like that's even snakier. It's like it's like, <laughs> well, again, it makes it makes what she says. And at the end, even more perfect because yes. she goes, sorry, we don't have any servants to show you out. And before, yes. like and that's in the original oh, cut good point. That's in the original. Yeah. cut. She says that. And it was always like. All right. Well, yeah, that's that makes sense because you're kind of poorish, I guess, and Salieri's rich. But it's because he left and let the servant show her out, you know, basically yes. naked. And it's just, oh man, it dug so much harder that time. It was awesome. I was like, <laughs> how? Oh, I, I mean, like point. of all the things to cut, why yeah. would you cut that? Yeah. I mean, I guess they had to 
find some way to make it shorter. I'm sure the original cut was just like people were like, oh, my I God, could, we can't have a three hour movie. I think Wes could fi- Wes could find 20 minutes easy in this film. Yeah, just some, like ancillary thing. bullshit. Well, as a yeah. as a Mozart music lover, I mean, I loved all the all the all the opera stuff. So and because it's about Mozart, I can see why that wasn't taken out. Because, I, I mean, I loved all the yeah. parts where they're showing, like, Don Giovanni and the Marriage of Figaro and the Magic Flute. Yeah. Like, all that stuff. It was just fun because I, I love going to, like, like, I've seen the long, uh, I see all those plays at the Long Center and stuff. And uh, it's mm-hmm. just a blast. It's just so wild and crazy and very out of my element to watch opera because I'm more of a rock, pop, whatever guy. And, uh, yeah. Uh, you like death metal. And death metal and, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I, I love that stuff. But um, I, yeah, I don't really know what else they could have taken out if if they had to make it shorter, which I'm sure they were demanded that they make shorter. So I don't know. Yeah, I guess that was it. Nice. I'll hit a few notes here and then I have some questions here at the end for some more for y'all. Cinematography wise, a lot of wide angles, a lot of deep focus for one, you know, lets us very clearly see the setting. Right. This is a period piece. You want to make sure you're especially if they're they're shooting some of these locations had no reason to be in there other than that's just a badass location like there's a walk and talk through a library that is freaking epic of a location and i'm like there ain't nothing they're doing or saying has anything to do with this location but was that the the shot of Salieri with the director yep (laughs) yeah yeah oh i remember that i was like this is crazy where are they i think that's the director's cut scene too because i don't remember that in the original Oh, um, oh, okay. Anyway, sorry. So it makes sense. Like you want to show off these locations and help sell the time period that you're in. Um, and obviously it's a lot brighter and it goes to the kind of story that you were talking about, which I'll touch on here in a second, I guess. But um, also a lot of locked off shots. Not entirely. It's not like this entire movie's on sticks, but a lot of locked off shots. Even whenever there's a lot of movement within the room, they're constantly letting people enter and exit frames within a scene. Uh, and, I, and to that degree, I feel like it's almost like we're, we're somewhat watching a play or perhaps an opera. Um, they're kind of giving you that feeling of, you know, you're, you're wide and you're watching things come and go. And as an audience member, right, you're not walking around. You're not emulating a, do- a dolly or anything. Um, and so I feel like some of the cinematography was kind of centered around some of those ideas. Maybe there's some odds and ends that don't really tie into any one specific thing. Like Todd already said, great performances, obviously both of y'all, I mean, you, you use the word clinic, Scott, and absolutely right. F. Murray Abraham just carves up the screen. He gives, and it's so funny the way he does it. And I, I got to credit a lot of it to the writing for sure, because so often he's just not doing anything. He's just watching people and he's not smiling. And he, he kind of just maybe frowns at people here and there, but mostly you're expecting something from him and he gives you nothing. And in that way, He's giving you everything like you're having to read all the subtext of what's in his head right now. He's watching this girl undress and then he's just staring at her like, what are you going to do? And he's like, show her out, please. Like, ding, 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 ding. He rings the bell. And that's such a like backhand. Like he just rings his tiny little bell instead of like screaming at her or whatever. Anyway, so his performance is fantastic. Obviously, uh, Tom Hulse is doing something completely different. I go through the the, probably the same range of motions that uh, Salieri does when when 
Mozart steps on the scene, I'm like, oh, who is this annoying brat? <laughs> like with this laugh. And then as the, the story progresses, his laugh becomes infectious and you just start to, yeah. uh, I don't know if I look forward to it, but when it happens, I laugh too. <laughs> like it's just yeah. too good. <laughs> it's just too good. Uh, but one of the even, I think some of the best performance actually comes from the priest towards the beginning. Like his reactions oh, good. to, yeah. right? Like it's fantastic. He's, there's all these textures that are happening and it's kind of his inability to lie as like Salieri's posing questions to him or asking almost for sympathy. Uh, and he just can't, he's not going to lie. He's not going to say, yeah, I recognize your music. He, he doesn't. But, and so there's this, there's this obstinance of, I'm not going to lie, but there's all these layers of compassion coupled with confusion and suspicion and horror like he's going through all these really tumultuous emotions perfectly. And he has very little words. There's so little dialogue. He has to really just play it, play against F Murray. And I'm sure F Murray Abraham was just giving him absolutely everything he could use, but that was absolutely the right person to have in the scene with you because uh, you really need someone who has an expressive face and that's just going to stick there with you and, and really, figure out what this priest is trying to deal with. Um, and whoever that actor was, uh, just absolutely knocked it out of the park. And so on a completely different note, the costumes incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like there's, you know, a handful of scenes, there's three hours of costumes of, you know, there's probably, and there's always a lot of people. Yeah. I was going to say all the extras, like good Lord out absolutely fantastic i was trying to look at some of the details towards the towards the end i was looking at this gold suit that mozart was wearing and i was trying to just pick out all the details in it and it's just flawless everybody every scene absolutely i i don't know if they won a, a an oscar for it i assume they did if I not a nomination did, yeah. yeah there's just no way they didn't walk away with that i'll check it and you can look in the show notes but uh, also, one of the funny, this is part of the odds and ends before I get into the, the story and writing. One of the funniest things that I'm surprised I haven't heard y'all y'all mention yet is the criticisms that people give in the film are absolutely hysterical. Right. Mm. Um, oh, it was it was yeah. it was absolutely perfect, except. Uh, well, what what is it? Too many notes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's that's it. That's it. Exactly. Too many notes. Which ones? Which ones would you like me to cut out? Oh, just take Sorry. out a few and I'm sure it'll be perfect. <laughs> which ones exactly? Too much spice. <laughs> it's so great. That's good. And those kind of little moments happen throughout the film. Like later on, yeah. whenever the emperor stops by the rehearsal, he's so confused why there's all this clopping around on the stage. <laughs> right. And he's like, what? What's going on? Well, you you decreed that there could be no ballet, and so the music has to be taken away. And he's like, "Oh, is it is it supposed to be like this? He's, Should we add in the music?" Well, sir, it's your law. Yes, but look at them. <laughs> like, I love when he turns and goes, "Is it modern? <laughs> is it modern? <laughs> like, is like, this is this cool? Is this, this hip? <laughs> if I tilt my head like this, is it modern? <laughs> is it modern?" <laughs> Dude, putting Jeffrey Jones as the emperor was like so the nice. craziest casting thing. And it's so perfect. 
He kills me. He kills yeah. me. Every scene he's in, I laugh so hard. He is strangely good at comedy because he has this very severe look. And so anytime he plays this kind of serious quirks, it just shines. Like yeah. it, it plays so well in contrast to his features and his attitude and his stoic nature. Mm-hmm. Um, his greatest role? Very his greatest Paris role? Yeah. No. Or, or Beetlejuice. Come on, guys. Beetlejuice. Oh, Howard the Duck? Howard the Duck. Thank you, Wes. You got it. You got it, buddy. Oh my god. He becomes that freaking thing. Anyway, don't want to ruin Howard the Duck for anybody. If you haven't watched Howard the Duck, I think Howard the Duck. Yeah, we're always two degrees from Howard the Duck. (laughs) Maybe that should be a thing moving forward. We have to like find like we have like six degrees of Kevin Bacon with six degrees of Howard the Duck. We gotta find a way back to Howard the Duck. Another bad, <laughs> like bad movie scary. episode with Howard the Duck. Bad movie. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen that in like 20 oh, years. No, it's, it's crap. Yeah. Maybe we should do that sometime <laughs> we'll, in 2020. We'll that up. Yeah, that'll be or a drunk episode. <laughs> Dear God, oh, please fun. no. It's so, I mean, some of these criticisms that they kind of lob, I felt like as artists and creatives, like we've all probably experienced variations on the on that theme of, People who want to pretend because the emperor, he's he's clearly not talented, but he wants to be in that world and his uh, obsession with it drives him to say and do stupid shit uh, because he doesn't know how to give a critique because he doesn't understand music. And so in order to act like or feel like he's a part of it, he says whatever he can in order to inject himself. And I, I think we deal with that sometimes, you know, whether it's with clients um, or with family members who want to be involved or, or whatever. And they'll just come off the wall with, you know, these ideas or critiques. And you're just like, yeah, OK, I see what you mean. Uh, and you do what you can to, you know, <laughs> like play give them an ear and not you know embarrass anybody but you're just like how can we move on as fast as possible to the next moment <laughs> because that's what everyone in that scene was doing right like yeah yeah yeah. and mozart was the only one who didn't understand what was happening <laughs> like everyone else was yeah. like yeah uh especially salieri because he gets in private and you really believe salieri is like yeah i man i'm sorry about that bro <laughs> like i had to do what i had to do yeah um yeah Moving into some of the story and writing, like I engaging the audience, I thought was really interesting. The first time we meet Mozart, they didn't belabor it, but they do kind of the let's let's build up the reveal um, because they kind of keep hiding them under the table and they kind of, you know, build up a little bit of we're going to get to see Mozart, who's the title figure. And so when we meet him, like he, he plays this little game with Stanzi where he's asking her to speak backwards, you know, speak these words backwards, this phrase. Um, and we watch her puzzle it out alongside with Salieri. And what I really like about that is it's a fun way to engage with the audience because we're doing the same thing. We're trying to solve the puzzle in our head at the exact same time that they are. And it's kind of putting us also in this kind of sub same subservient position. Uh, we have to do as Mozart says. And so it's kind of an interesting way to engage us while also giving Mozart power over us because we're bidding at his command much in the same way as Stanzi. So that's a really fun little nifty trick that, that they were playing. One of the things I, I, I like, and this is going to come back to something that Scott said a little while ago. Um, I love that Mozart argues for frivolous enjoyment over elevated stories. And we all love everyone on, on this podcast, like loves 
elevated, high thought stories. We also love our whatever Indiana Joneses. Like we enjoy something that's popcorn fun. It still needs to be good and quality, uh, but we have a, a really strong appreciation for it. Um, one of the interesting things about Mozart, though, is that his version of silly fun is a four hour operatic romp. <laughs> like, Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like yeah. it's it's very different we we want like an hour and a half two hours you know and i think to scott's point earlier about this movie you know light and it's fun i think it's kind of mirroring mozart in that way like this is three hours of silly light fun in 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 the same way that mozart was putting the emperor through four hours of it you know they wanted to put us through three hours of mozart being being light and airy and whatever and that's fun salieri skipping to another random thing salieri i feel like had much more in common with mozart than he realized both of them felt really unappreciated like Salieri, you know, gets all this glory from the emperor and right. He, he does his show. He invites Mozart. Hey, come see my latest con- concerto or whatever it was. And he shows up and obviously Mozart freaking hates it. But the emperor, like everyone applauses and the emperor gives him this uh, award. And he says, this is the best opera ever written, um, which is right on the heels of Mozart's failure, so to speak, of him saying, you know, yes, it was brilliant. It was the best opera ever written. And then cut to Salieri being awarded. And he's so dissatisfied because even though he's getting all these accolades from the the emperor and his peers, the only one he actually wants, the only praise that he really covets is from Mozart. Whereas Mozart wants the inverse. He wants everyone else's recognition. All the things that, you know, Salieri is getting secretly, he doesn't really ever make a show of it, but that's what Mozart really wants. Uh, he's so frustrated with, you know, the, the, the state of justifying his art to these aristocrats and them not understanding it or appreciating it. And uh, of course, he doesn't know Salieri is working against him behind the scenes the entire time, which is a weird stab in the side. Yeah. And so they, they really have so much more overlap and in common than, than they really appreciate. Yeah, because they they both really want both. Yeah. But it comes out as, what do I not have? That's what I want. Mozart didn't have money or fame. That's what he wanted. Salieri only had money and fame. So he wasn't looking for the... He already knew that the the king or the emperor or whatever loved his work. He already knew that everybody loved him. He already had the money. What he wanted was his peers to also think that... He's the greatest. So, yeah, absolutely. And he the the interesting thing about Salieri and I think the usage of God is that Salieri is doing what nobody else is, which is he's thinking in a much bigger time frame and a much bigger context of eternity. He's seeing fine. Yes, everyone likes my work. But Mozart is better than anyone here is recognizing except me. And he feels like a fraud because of it, because he's getting what he thinks Mozart deserves. And he knows he doesn't deserve it. It doesn't matter how good everyone Mm. says it is. He knows that in the context of history, Mozart is going to swallow him whole. Very good point. Yeah. And that's one of the cool things I really like about the usage of God is putting everything into a much bigger, grandiose uh, perspective. Well, what I was thinking was like very similar to what y'all are saying, but like with Salieri, like, yeah, Mozart's wanting this and that. But like, to me, it seems like Salieri just wants like to be God's channel 
And that's Mm -hmm. why he's channeling his hate so much into Mozart because he has convinced himself that everything Mozart does is being channeled directly from God. And he is just, he can't accept that God would choose this creature as he keeps calling them, which is amazing (laughs) and so funny, but, and that he didn't choose someone like him who has been devout and praying his whole life to like, he gave up his chastity and he devoted everything, his humility and everything that he could just create music and that's it. But yet he chose someone like Mozart who, you know, we're in the same time frame to pour God's music into. And he's just this, you know, defiled, nasty little foul mouth person, you know? And yeah, I think, I don't think Crawling Salieri. around on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just Salieri couldn't take it. So yeah, yeah, someone like a pious person. And then, then he would just, you know, flip and completely renounce God and toss the crucifix yeah. in the fire and, you know. Boom. See, and there is, there is like, I also love the usage of God, but also because it, and I don't think this is necessarily the intention of the director or the writer but in general, like requesting talent or creativity from a deity is ridiculous. <laughs> and it, 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 it takes the ownership off of you of everything. It takes the ownership of the creativity off of you. It takes the ownership of the, the thing that you create away from you. Mm-hmm. Like everything came from this thing or this person up in the sky. And it's like, it, it is is ridiculous and it destroyed him. It destroyed Salieri. But one of the things that destroyed is because he thought if I give enough to this, to God, if I give enough of, of all the pleasures and wonders of life that make life worth living and happy in happiness, if I make myself unhappy in every other way by giving and, and saying, I'm doing it for God then God will give me this creativity. But then that's not your creativity if that works. So it's just, it's like, it, I don't think, again, that it was the the goal of the film mm-hmm. uh, or the writer or anything, but it just, it that struck a chord with me a lot. And I think maybe it was the goal because the whole thing, I mean, there was a priest talking to Salieri, right? The, the whole thing was centered around, it started with his conversation with, uh, with, what he was going to do for God. Yeah. And it ended with, with him, you know, absolving people, you know, <laughs> like it's, it was, it was very centered around his focus of, of God, whether that was pro or, or anti. For sure. And yeah, because he does start with the whole, the chasteness, uh, you know, pledge and, you know, mm-hmm. he's going to honor God, you know, every That's hour the very of his beginning. life. Um, yeah. So there is one thing before I arrive at my conclusion so to speak and and have a couple questions but the first one before i get to that salieri seems to substitute and this is the best reading i can do his sexual desires with sweets mm-hmm. like <laughs> right the servants at the very beginning before we even meet salieri the, the servants are tempting him with sweets right uh before they discover that he's cut himself open and like they submit him to the psych ward and then one of the first when we first meet Mozart, he finds himself in a room with desserts. Yep. And, you know, later in not long after he meets his wife, Stanzi, and he's offering her. What is it? Uh, 
the nipples of Venus. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like, so it seems like his, his substitution for sexual gratification is coming through the form of the indulgence of desserts, um, the sweetness. Um, and that's the best I can, you know, he can't have companionship, but he can have, you know, these treats, I guess. I, that's the best I can do with the whole dessert subplot, if you will. Well, they, sure. what do they say? Like, uh, it, uh, chocolate's a uh, aphrodisiac, right? Like oysters. Yeah. yeah. So right. I mean, yes. You know, yeah. Music and but doesn't that make it worse? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I want to subdue that shit. I'm not. It's so overall, like the kind of my bottom line here, I think, is I felt like I understood Salieri to a very large degree because I think we all live in the shadow of Mozart, or at least the story of Mozart. Like I grew up with that story as a kid. And so, you know, as you can, no one can stand. I mean, you have to understand uh, also that Beethoven, probably the greatest composer who ever lived, lived in the shadow of Mozart. Literally. (laughs) Right. Like he was born 14 years after after Mozart and had to grow up hearing about this dude. And so and I'm sure, you know, Beethoven had his virtuoso moments as well. But I don't know if he was a five-year-old playing in front of the king who's mastered his instrument. You know, that's that's something as a kid wrecked me. Like, how do you what what do you say to someone like, hey, you're a six-year-old lazy piece of shit because you haven't mastered <laughs> your your art and performing? I mean, that's for- what I tell my seven-year-old every morning he wakes up. Oh, good morning, lazy piece of shit. <laughs> like it's- Have you mastered the piano yet? Go what back a- to bed. <laughs> What a brutal like story to grow up under because I did. I honestly, I can, I, that story struck, you know, stuck with me as a kid. And I was used to, you know, have that in my head, comparing myself by that standard. And I think that's kind of what, what one of the things this, this story is driving at in a subtle way. I don't think it's super overt, uh, but it's comparison is the thief of joy. Mm-hmm. Whenever Salieri was so focused on who he wasn't that he never got to enjoy the fruits of his own labor. Like you said, Todd, you know, he's so busy, you know, cursing or, or thanking God for his talent or lack thereof that he never took any uh, comfort in what he created. He never, you know, said, what is the best that I can be? Um, he never competed against himself. He was always only thinking about the shadow that he, he cast, you know, he put himself in. And so, yeah, I'm curious about y'all. Like, did y'all grow up hearing and knowing about Mozart? Was that something you were aware of early in life or did it only strike you, you know, uh, later? Uh, Mozart specifically? Yeah. So I do remember, maybe silly story, but uh, I was in middle school. I think it was eighth grade. I had heard from something or another that listening to Mozart made you smarter, I guess. So I, I remember it was actually one of the first CDs I think I ever got. But I had, I had asked my mom to buy me a Mozart CD because I kind of thought that it would like just make me smarter just li- listening to it. So I would put it on like when I was doing homework or like when I'd go to bed and I'd put it on and fall asleep to it, you know, thinking maybe some way it (laughs) gave me more wrinkles in my brain. But I mean, just whether or not it did, who knows? Probably not, obviously. But (laughs) but uh, it did ingrain uh, some of those songs or some of his little piano medleys into my brain. So like anytime I hear them or um, whatever, they just... I just, I get taken away instantly. It's just like my brain goes to a different place and I'm 
just locked in with the song. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I guess around seventh, eighth grade, I started developing a, a love for specifically Mozart, but I didn't see Amadeus, the movie, or really get to know his story mm-hmm. and uh, his operas specifically till much later, mm. like early twenties, I guess. Todd, your, your mom uh, knows a thing or two about pianos. So I'm guessing you probably mm-hmm. knew something about this guy or no. Yeah. I mean, she taught classical piano for, I mean, 20 years. I mean, every, every day kids in and out. And, um, I was an idiot kid who just wanted to play guitar and write songs. So I didn't, I thought it was annoying and I didn't ever learn. Um, so stupid, but I, you know, I, I did know the story, you know, I, I did know about Salieri and about Mozart and stuff, but not a, not a whole lot regarding the comparison thing. I've always, man, it has always been a problem for me. Same. And I can't help it. I I cannot, I cannot help it, man. Like there is, there's, there's good in comparison. There is good. Comparing yourself to others that are better than you can be a driving force to get better. Right. Mm -hmm. But it can, like you said, it can also be the, the, what is it? The killer of joy or something? Yeah. Thief of joy. That's beautiful. Well said. It's always been a real problem with me. I have this problem in everything that I do where I'm very single minded and then and and I can't like I have this Celieri problem where like I'm very single minded about something and I obsess about it. And sometimes that is comparison. Sometimes, you know, like I'll be upset and Scott's well aware of this in, in our history playing music together. I'll get obsessed about a singer or a specific band or a guitarist or something. And I just try to be that. And it's, it's just, it's terrible because I can never be that nor should I be, you know, like I'm, I'm not that. Am I that good? Probably not. But could I be better than that? The way that I am. If I, if I double down on myself, maybe you, who knows, but you know, yeah. So it's, it sucks that I've been like that, but, um, I do think in some ways it's made me better. So there's, there's good and there's bad with it. And I think there's just like anything, there's somewhere in the middle is, is what, you know, you, you shoot for, you look for the good in that, that person or that piece of music or that, that thing that, that you look up to so highly can pull out of you. And then you kind of like have to also be disciplined enough to let it go. I think a good way to describe it, bad to compare it to something else, would be uh, the stock market. Just because Wes, Wes and I, we've talked about this a little bit. I know, boring, <laughs> unless you unless you have money in it, and right. then it's not boring at all. Um, I, I, so I heard a good quote from, from someone, and this is deviating just for a second, but it'll come right back, who said, if you can't take the red days, you don't deserve the green days. And that really stuck with me because, you know, well, I'm invested in Tesla. And some days that's pretty awesome and that's fantastic. But the red days are brutal, brutal, especially when you don't time it right and you buy right before red day, it hurts a lot. And I, when I say a lot, I mean like, like this is a, this is a stock that just plummets. And so what I'm, you know, but if you, if you just take a breath and let it go and you ride it out, and you just, you know, you, be, you reset in what you believe, you know, 
Like I believe in this company. I think it's going to continue going up. Oh yeah. <laughs> then it, then, I mean, if you still believe in it and you stick with your plan, the idea is that you'll be better off in, in the long run. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I want to, I'm only comparing that because it's the same way that I should have been growing up. I should have been, Oh my God, Steve Ray Vaughn is amazing. How could I learn something from it rather than how could I be like him, you know, or Matt Bellamy is an amazing singer. How can I, I knew you knew I was coming. You knew it was coming, Scott. <laughs> how could, how can I, how can I learn from him rather than try to sound like him? That is, you know, I mean, and every, I think everybody has that problem, especially every musician. I'm sure Scott, you've had that, that issue at some point, but I think playing in a band with you helped me a lot because you kind of called me out on it a lot. And I didn't, not so much in saying like, 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 dude, come on, you know, you're not that guy, but more along the lines of, of like saying when something wasn't right Hmm. and it wasn't right because it wasn't me. Uh Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, that's something as I get older, I remember when I was younger, I never really had any kind of like regrets. If I wanted to do something, I just did it. Mm. If I wanted to get something, I found a way to get it and whatever. But now as I get older and I'm able to look back on it, you know, hindsight's 2020. And I think, I think there are some things that I do regret, like a literal regret. And that's definitely one of them. I think that I would have enjoyed it those years a lot more too. And kind of like given myself a little bit of like leeway to be a little bit more like Mozart and have more fun, mm. you know, and just kind of like let whatever came out, come out the way that it is supposed to come out, you know, kind of like what he does, what he did at the end, especially, you know, when he was in his bed anyway. But then Mozart's like the exact extreme opposite of that is like, that's all he did. And he didn't think about anything else and it completely destroyed right. his life. Good point. That is so absolutely. You know, it's yeah. It's how you look at it, you know. Yeah, there's a yeah. balance there for sure. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. That's where yeah. we. Because I agree. It's, it's nice to take an assessment and to say, "Hey, where do I stand amongst my peers?" Um, it's another thing to be like, "Oh, I'm not as good, therefore I may as well not even exist." Like those are just two radically yes. different uh, approaches to life. Mm. But they make for a good movie. <laughs> they make for a great, <laughs> a great movie. the best. <laughs> No, nobody wants anybody lukewarm about anything. That's <laughs> so true. God spits like, out the lukewarm. <laughs> but speaking of speaking of extremes, one of the things I wondered, and I know where I stand on this, but obviously Mozart is great. He shows up and he's just a whiz on the piano. And I'm wondering, do you all think maybe they strip down everyone else's ability a little too much in order to help prop him up and show how good he is? Like I felt like Salieri's playing whenever he's on the keys. They make him just one step above elementary grade talent. Uh, I think they could have made him a little bit better and still demonstrated the expertise and skill of of a Mozart without having to make him just sound like he's playing chopsticks uh, is what it sounded like to me. Um, But I don't know what that came across to y'all. I mean, I 100% agree. Uh, That goes back to like the historical accuracy of it and why so many people both hate it and love it. Uh, They hate it for the accuracy, the missing the real historical context of what everything was at the time, but also they love it because just whoever wrote it told a really good, well, Peter Schaefer, I I think wrote it Uh, Mm -hmm. just was perfect for what it was. But uh, 
but yeah, like, I mean, Celieri was like a huge, massive composer at the time and like has done amazing work. Like, yeah, he was definitely like absolutely legit as a composer. And the, yeah, the, I feel like they definitely did dumb him down and kind of make him a little more of a simpleton. Which was, which was unnecessary, I feel like, because what I would, what I would like to see is him being amazing and then being amazed. Yeah. Right. Ooh. You don't have to be this, seem like a novice to make some, this other amazing person seem amazing. You can be amazing, but by being amazed by that other person, then all of a sudden I'm more amazed by that person because you're so amazing already. Hmm. So yeah, I don't think that was necessary, but I agree that they did that. Yeah. It's a little bit of what we don't like in terms of talking down to the audience and not trusting us to yeah. learn along the way that, oh yeah, he is really good. Holy crap. And I loved your point, Todd, because you're right. Watching someone talented be amazed by someone else's talent is a really enriching experience for sure. Yeah. Because nobody... Nobody watching this movie has any idea of what it was like in 1790, right? right? Yeah. Like nobody uh, of like what music was like. So when when you hear when you hear this piece that Mozart's playing, unless you know it already, you know, like the piece of the the, the woman singing, you know, it sounded just like that. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah perfect. Uh, <laughs> When, you know, uh, you obviously know that piece and that, so that's amazing. Yeah. Right. But there were several other pieces they played that I, I, I didn't know it was Mozart. Like there was, oh, okay. Interesting. So I had no, there was no, like, there's nothing to hold that up to, uh, to make me say, this is an amazing piece of music other than Salieri's reaction to it yeah. and him talk, you know, they'll, they, they cut to voiceover of him talking to the priest. It was like the voice of god himself <laughs> you know um and all of a sudden oh maybe that is the voice of god let me mm -hmm. listen sounds very godly <laughs> okay uh <laughs> but but um but you know i could it could have been either way it, i mean it, it that's how i knew it was good yeah because of his reaction to it not because i loved that piece of music from mozart if he wasn't the one waving the the baton, uh, you know, uh, at the symphony, I wouldn't have known that it was his music sometimes because they didn't really play like the super famous pieces in it. That was the other thing. It was like there were there are other pieces that are very famous today that they didn't bring out. Yeah. Which, you know, it was fine. I, I don't have any problem with it, but it was very it was. Yeah, as the audience, we didn't have a can't anything to hold it up against. Yeah, no, you're right. And there's other elements that I'm surprised they didn't go to, like more uh, piano concerts where we just get to see Mozart on stage, dazzling everybody right. and holding, you know, everyone's attention yeah. in that way. Instead, they save those moments for him being a debauch, you know, uh, in, in the clubs and he's, I mean, he's yeah. clowning with it. He's not appreciating it. And so it's an interesting choice and it fits the theme of the film about how, you know, he's, he's the wrong instrument of God, uh, because of the way he uses his, uh, his talent. Um, but mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, you're telling a story about Mozart where you never give him some of his, uh, most glorious moments in, in some sense to me as yeah. a un, unlearned Mozart guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, pretty much sums up unless y'all have any final things that are, you know, itching away at you. I, I had, I had just one thing that I thought was really interesting, but I, uh, I kind of went down a rabbit hole of 
Amadeus and Peter Schaefer and all the writing and all that. And um, I found and to really understand where this is going to go. We got to start with Stonehenge. Well, <laughs> 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 but I could go back to like something I was going to recommend later on, but whatever. So I re- doing a little bit of research. I found a picture of an older picture of uh, two actors on stage. And I was reading a little bit and it was, basically saying that um, before the movie, I think this was like maybe 1980, 79, somewhere around there, uh, originally on stage, not Broadway, but whatever the Broadway version of England is, Royal something or another, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, that Tim Curry and Ian McKellen were the leads in Amadeus. So it was Holy obviously Tim Curry as Amadeus and Ian McKellen as Salieri. And... <sighs> That I mean, that in itself just absolutely melted me, and I was spent hours trying to find video, and it doesn't exist. But then that led me to even more that um, the the guy that replaced Tim Curry as Amadeus was Mark Hamill in around 1981, (laughs) I think. And Mark Hamill, yeah. So Mark in the middle of his Star Wars run, in the middle of I think it was right after Empire. Mark Hamill went on to do to play Amadeus on the same stage in England. And I, uh, and I forget the guy's name, something Wood, John Wood, uh, James Woods, maybe something, something like that. I think I'm a legit dude, but he, he switched and did Zellieri, but he did this for, I think a year or so in between star Wars, right up until the auditioning for the film version of Amadeus. And cause like, I mean, that was, I mean, literally back to back, from the stage to the auditioning of the, the film. And so obviously Mark Hamill was there reading audition after, after audition with different uh, actresses to play, I guess, Stanza, Stanzi, Constanza, whatever. And um, I think after like the sixth or seventh take, he was just like, you know, I've done Amadeus, right? You guys, you guys know this, right? Like I did it on stage. Like I know what the character is. And uh, the director, I forget his name. Um, he, they eventually decided to go with Tom Hulse, the unknown <laughs> animal house, like no, no name, whoever, because they just didn't think that the audience would accept, uh, the quote, uh, Luke spacewalker <laughs> as Amadeus. Oh, he got a, he got a <laughs> loose space. He didn't even know, but he just, he, I mean, and it's probably rightly so. Like I, I, I don't think I would have, I would have loved this movie as much with, it would have been on him. And th- that's the interesting thing is yeah. history looks different for Mark Hamill if he gets that role. True. Because it's probably still much the same movie. It's going to take us the first, you know, 30, 40 minutes to stop seeing Luke Spacewalker and, <laughs> and start seeing, you know, Wolf, Wolfie. Uh. And but that's that's his job as an actor is to to make that transformation and make it easy for the, for the audience. And I mean, at the end of the day, I, I suspect you're, you're right in the sense of don't make it hard for the audience, make it easy for the audience by bringing in someone you don't know. But my heart does break a little bit for Mark Hamill because it feels good enough to do it on stage. I have to think he was good enough to do it on film. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, it's bittersweet. Cause yeah, it sucks for him personally that that could have helped me potentially launch his career in other ways. Cause I mean, I'm sure it probably still would have won an Oscar, many Oscars, because, yeah. I mean, obviously F. Murray Abram and everything else. <laughs> yeah. But um, but also, you know, I mean, his lack of being able to be cast again led to him 
doing his massive voiceover work, which, you know, he was the Joker for like 20 years. You know, every Joker mm -hmm. animated movie you've seen is Mark Hamill. So one of the things that struck me about Tom Holtz as, as Amadeus was that he's not a very attractive guy. Um, and to me, that kind of adds to the ire of you don't expect someone that looks like that to produce the things that he produced. And so, I mean, it works really well. Mark Hamill at the time was, you know, much more attractive and played really well. And so you might see him getting all these women. You're like, yeah, of course, you know, mm. seeing, you know, Tom Hulse doing that instead. You're like, oh, man, that stings. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, th th this would kind of tie into the only other big point I wanted to bring up was just that, uh, I mean, I loved the, uh, the realism of the movie, which really took me like, I don't think I really noticed it until this last viewing, but I just kept noticing all these really like very detailed, obscure moments in shots where it just was like, oh, that's real. Like, so they're rehearsing for a play and you see the actress on stage doing something. She's tying her hair up and she just has these like huge pit stains. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, that's because she's been there for like probably five hours with no air conditioning. Yeah, she's going to be drenched. <laughs> or uh, during the scene where the, the emperor comes in, they're doing the ballet and there's, you know, there's clopping around. But you, in the background, you see the chandelier has been lowered and they're, the guys are like literally lighting all the candles of all the slots for the chandelier to lift it back up. And that's, you know, that's how they light that shit. What else? Uh, oh, uh, during one of the, um, operas Mozart's conducting and you see like little kids like behind him watching and you see like the guard or the lobby guy having to like come and grab him. be like, you know, get out of here. Like it just, I loved their attention to those little just details to make it seem like, like you're really just a fly on the wall. Like this is, this could have happened in real life. Like to make, to make it more modern, or just just tangible. I don't know. I I, I thought yeah. they did a great job. I was super impressed. Yeah, that kind of stuff was like done to a T, man. Yeah, for sure, hundred percent. So moving into the last segments, Scott, what are you going to recommend this week? Oh, so okay, yeah. Uh, so I wanted to originally be apropos and be like everyone should listen to the Marriage of Figaro because. It's one of the best operas ever written, and uh, the intro is one of the greatest musical pieces you'll ever hear, which all that is true. But uh, last second, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do something. The last thing that I've actually been obsessed with, and it has been, of all things, a video game, which is the new God of War. For whatever reason, I fell in love with that game, and I loved yeah. everything about the mythology, the Norse mythology, uh, the detail to everything. It's just, it's an amazing game. Uh, <laughs> maybe not what we're talking about movies, but I don't care, but <laughs> it's, it's awesome. And if you like video games at all, you should 100% play that, that game. Anyway, dude, did you see, they have a film about it. Really? No, I don't. They have a film about the making of it. It's like an hour and a half long or something. <gasps> it's ridiculous. It's on YouTube. Ooh. You can watch it. It's about the people who made it. And it shows the guys, the, the director shows his reaction fine because it, it takes took like seven years to make that or like something ridiculous, six, seven years. It. And the whole idea of doing it all in one shot yeah. and like the whole game in a single shot was like never done before. And they, they actually have a moment where they show his reaction when he sees the reaction of where well, he wakes up in the morning and he's going to he's going to go online to see 
does the world like what we've spent the last seven years building? Yeah. And he, and he sees, and he it shows his reaction. It's just cool. It's a great thing. You should go watch oh, yeah. it, man. That's we'll, great. We'll great recommendation. There. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> I know what my next hour and a half is. And we'll link that in the show notes uh, so that everyone can check that out. Cool. Nice. What do you guys toddies? Oh, I'm going to, okay. So I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to recommend a film that really, really, hit home in a lot of ways specifically about music but it doesn't have to be about music it just has to be about something that you love and not knowing where it's going to take you in your in your journey but still adhering to it and staying staying true to staying true to what you love but allowing life to happen around you can you guess it homeward bound <laughs> <laughs> I think you all. I think that's like the third time you've guessed when we're down when I say true. this. Thing. <laughs> okay, okay, Mister Mister Years, nineteen ninety five. Ooh, so, oh, say the synopsis one more time. Paraphrased. Oh, uh, I don't even know what I said. <laughs> uh, 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 sticking to what you love, but letting life continue to happen around you. Mister Holland's Opus. Yes. <laughs> Did you just Google 1995 films? I did not. Wow. <laughs> really? Yeah. Was my synopsis that good? <laughs> Dude, that's a great was movie. It, was I that amazing that you got that? From? I just mind meld. That's incredible. Thanks. <laughs> that's crazy. God dang it, man. That's like the 10th time you've done that. Yeah. And you yeah, still owe Mr. me Holland's like a bag Opus. of popcorn, it, by the way. What? I said you still owe me a bag of popcorn from... Uh, my cyber truck that, guess way back that's true uh. that is true oh my god that's right that's right anyway yeah that that film man that film changed my outlook on life and uh. i have i have no idea if it holds up i haven't seen it in a long time but i remember watching yeah. it the first time i was just weeping in the end i was like maybe i should be a teacher i don't know <laughs> <laughs> for I, 40 years i haven't seen that movie in a long time but i i remember loving it the first time i saw it right and last time yeah nice. but yeah great yeah, richard dreyfus kills that anyway well done and wes thank you i am going to give you the same opportunity so i'm going to recommend a movie that has the single best opera scene in history the best opera performance, I should specifically say. Um, Fifth element. Of, what? Did I get it? What was it? Oh, you didn't hear, so you can you can take a crack. I was going to guess Phantom of the Opera. I don't Ooh. know. What? Fifth element. Yeah. <laughs> Scott. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know why I was like, oh, he's going to say this. Why did you? That's amazing. You guessed it, Scott. Yeah, Before crazy. he could even finish the question. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, Besson. So yeah, so, dude, that's, yeah, that's a crazy scene. Because she isn't she singing in like another language, like some alien language? Yeah. yeah. And she's, her voice is absolutely crazy. But like who wrote um, that language? <laughs> like, did they go all Tolkien on us and we just didn't know it? Maybe I'll link that in the show notes too. Cause there is some really cool behind the scenes featurettes about that oh, specifically. I'm gonna have it's to watch such a wild, that whole movie is amazing. We're definitely going to be doing that soon ish. Nice. Well, stay tuned for next week. We are going to cover wonder woman, 1984, and we're going to go back to our roots. 131 episodes later, because our very first episode was uh, wonder woman. 
and this is episode 132 so 133 will be for wonder woman 1984 and it's if you haven't heard that first episode, it's worth it just for the story of <laughs> of Todd. Yes. Todd's oh experience God. to go see Wonder Woman. That's how we started this podcast, that, with that yeah. story. Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. I, feel like I, I have to go relive that. It's absolutely wonderful. Do you remember that story, Scott? Did I'm, I tell you that I'm story? Sh- I think I did it was like something happened right before you got there and you, it, like Yeah, it, go li- just go listen to it. Uh-huh. Just it's yeah. So, uh, it's, it's okay. Yeah. When I got there. Yeah. It, <laughs> Don't forget unreal. to subscribe, review us on iTunes, leave us a note. If you want us to talk about a thing, um, we are more than happy to do so. Um, and if you want to leave a note on this episode, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash Amadeus. And, uh, we will leave you with a quote of the day. This one is from Beethoven. I've never thought of writing for reputation and honor. What I have in my heart must come out. That is the reason why I compose. That should be. Obviously, it contrasts perfectly with both Mozart and Salieri. Like, mm-hmm. he, yeah, you know, to not be concerned with any of that. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. I, exactly what you said, as it should be. Yeah. I mean, most, you know, if, you, if, if the recommendation is to not make life decisions based on money, because that's what I've always heard. That's what I've tried to live by. Then I think the same should be on creating. I mean, you can't. Because if you're creating with the idea of this is going to make me money, then you're concerned that someone else is going to like it. And then you're not, you're creating for them, not for you. And in some cases, I mean, there's nothing wrong with creating for someone else. Like if you're being uh, commissioned to make something, a piece of art or a, a piece of music or something that's specific. But if you are creating from your heart, that is, that is something you cannot concern yourself with other people about you just gotta let it let it happen also i think like just in addition to what you're saying but also just creative people just need to create and if they don't then i think you're kind of holding not only stuff back from the world but just from yourself like i you know you have to kind of like tap that thing that builds into you and if you don't let it go then it just sort of just regresses inside of you and kind of either makes you bitter or x y and z but um yeah if like you're like a artist and a creative artist like you have to do that absolutely we're we're creators like that's that's one of the the amazing things about human beings is whether or not you create for like todd said a living whether or not you do it for money or a commission um or you you can be a creator in almost anything it doesn't have to be something that uh, is labeled artistic Uh, you can be a creator you know, whether it's in the kitchen or if it's building homes or uh, if it's being a businessman, like that's a creative environment you're creating. And I think as people, uh, we are not happy. I think anyone who just consumes, anyone who just takes is unhappy. I would be very surprised to find anyone who is living that kind of life uh, and finding fulfillment in it. That's one of the reasons why I've never really aspired to be filthy rich or at least, you know, admired or had huge amounts of envy for for incredibly wealthy peoples because they it looks very dissatisfying to some degree. Money can get you to a degree uh, happiness by removing problems. But beyond that, you need to be giving like you need to whether it's, you know, creatively or you need to be expressing yourself and this is how we connect with society. And as, you know, Scott was just saying, this is how, you know, you 
creating, you're, you're expelling something from you and you're giving something to yourself through the act of creation. And I think this is one of the most incredible parts about humanity in and of itself. Oh, we and be, be, this is a great quote. Beethoven's my favorite composer by far. So oh, nice. Beethoven. More of a Beethoven guy, yeah. are you? Oh, okay. Interesting. I am. Oh. I am. Bum, bum, bum. Anyway. Do <laughs> you have any shout outs, man? Uh, no. I forgot to delete no. those from last week, but. No, all good. Yeah. That's what I thought. <laughs> no shout problem. Out, shout out to uh, Mark Hamill. Woo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to you, Scott. Thanks for joining us, buddy. Oh, man, yeah, thanks, man. And to that 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 sexy new haircut you got. Yeah. Oh, oh, let it let it flap in the breeze. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Yeah, it feels nice. It's like um, every seven years I grow my hair out and I chop it off. You know, it's just cyclical. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it's a crazy cycle. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Anything else that you want to add before we go? I usually like to give someone, uh, give our, our guests one more shot to leave with something. I don't something. know. I mean, I, thank you for finally yeah. listening to me to to do this movie. Uh, oh, I think right. it's been, You've been screaming at least at a the, couple years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, let's do Amadeus. 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 Just because, I don't know. I love it. I, I get so, yeah. I, not only like just I, I have fun and I enjoy it, and, but it's like it really like, lights a fire under my ass again, like inspires me. Cause it's like just to see the passion of, uh, these guys with music and like specifically with Salieri when he's reading it and like, you just see him just go to another place, rips the page and it's another song. Um, I don't know. I just, I love that obsession with something. I don't know. This year has been, you know, I don't have to describe what this year has been, but yeah, it's, it's been a little lackluster to put it lightly. And, uh, yeah, I, like, I can't wait for things to like really ignite again. And, uh, this movie was perfect for me personally, just to like, ah, oh, yeah, like this stuff exists still cool. Yeah. So anyway, dude, I, I love that. Actually you, yeah, you brought something up that bubbled up again. I remember watching it and thinking, wow, this really humanizes great talent. So you can, and my, my wife actually asked me this. She said, she said, do you think you're born, you know, cause like he was three when he wrote his first concerto or something. And she, she said, do you think you're born with that? Like he was born with that. And I said, I mean, his I think some people are more pre, yeah. Some people are more predestined to be great. Like they just have something. Right. But I think that hmm. 90% of it is, is nurture, not, not nature. Mm. I think maybe someone might have more dexterity in their fingers. So they're better. It's easier for them to get good at playing piano. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, or someone just hears stuff in their head. Right. Like it's, it's hard to teach that. It's hard to teach someone. You sit down and say, hear something in your head. You know, you can't really like force someone to, to hear that, but for a three-year-old to just hear that and, and then be able to put it into, you know, whatever like that, that a lot has to happen for that to happen. So to see, them struggle to see someone like like of talent like Salieri struggle with creating something that's of caliber for of Mozart and to see even see Mozart at times struggle like you know pining over the over it and it did seem effortless at, for most of the time but sometimes it was it was still you know difficult for him to live his life and, and to to create it came so out to see that ways, is very like yeah. Yeah, it came out different ways. It was like very like humanizing of that brilliance, of the timeless brilliance. Uh, so yeah, I, I had the same feeling of like this little bit of fire of like, 
of oh oh and his mozart's or at least this version's just apathy of i mean he cared what people thought but <laughs> he didn't get it unless they loved it like you could you know he cared he cared if they loved it but if they didn't love it he just didn't couldn't understand possibly why they could possibly not love it mm-hmm. <laughs> like how could that not how how could what you just heard not be perfect how, it's perfect how do i change a note when it's perfect yeah. <laughs> like just the yeah. you, you know the best opera uh, ever written of course yeah just to have that attitude and you know yeah you could you could say he was like full of himself but to have that attitude of of no i'm making great stuff that's pretty awesome i i wonder if one day i could think <laughs> any even a fraction of that about the stuff i make i don't know probably not i hope not <laughs> but anyway yeah so that was wonderful anyway thank you so much scott for joining us i really appreciate My it pleasure, man. man this has been wonderful i love these i look forward to these so yeah keep going cool we'll Let's do another we'll have you on again soon for sure yes. okay we'll do we'll do yeah this has been great thank you guys for joining us uh and for sticking with us through this whole episode make sure to share this with your friends to uh subscribe to review uh tell us what you want us to to cover uh we will cover it for sure and and yeah it, it, please rate us all that stuff ha- helps uh for sure until next time i'm todd i'm wes and i'm amadeus <laughs> <laughs> Go watch the movies.